Hello and welcome to the IC Companies and Markets podcast. I'm Mark Robinson, filling in for our sainted editor, John Human, who's on a cultural tour of uh, northern Italy with his family. We all send out uh, regards to John. I'm joined this week by Emma Powell, our news and banking editor, and also our oil and gas mining podcast expert, General Roustabout Alex Newman. Good afternoon to the pair of you. Before we come on to the uh, news section, as is traditional, I should highlight uh, this week's cover feature, which is looking at uh, North Sea decommissioning. Uh, it's a subject that's uh, attracting increasing column inches in the press of late. And uh, Alex has done a, a sterling job in uh, running down exactly where we are at the moment. But we'll come on to that in a moment, just after we've been through uh, news for this week. Uh, Emma, uh, what are some of the main stories? Obviously, the one that's uh, attracted uh, a lot of attention as well is the uh, follow-up to the LIBOR uh, inquiry with the Bank of England. They've been drawn into it now. Yeah, so there was a Panorama special, BBC Panorama special, which disclosed a kind of exchange between uh, Mark Dearlove, one of the managers, and also uh, the, the submitter, the LIBOR rate submitter, Peter Johnson, who, who later actually went on to plead guilty to manipulating the LIBOR rate in 2014. But this exchange, basically, it comes from Mark Dearlove implicating the Bank of England in putting pressure on Barclays to kind of lower the LIBOR rate. Obviously, it's important to say that um, the Bank of England has always denied putting any pressure on 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 any lenders the idea emma i suppose was the bank well according to the theory uh, was trying to keep uh, the interbank rate artificially low to bolster uh, yeah. business confidence yeah so this was in the during the 2008 uh, financial crisis so the the idea or the theory would be that um you know they wanted they would like to keep the rate low to encourage lending between banks and I guess to consumers also, um, or big businesses. But yeah, again, just to, just to clarify, that obviously the Bank of England has denied it. There were also um, uh, members of the government were implicated. But actually, interestingly, um, MP Chris Philp, who sits on the Treasury Select Committee, um, he featured in the programme saying that he thinks there should be another inquiry launched because obviously it's, um, it's a criminal offence to lie to a select committee. So um, they, they kind of the, the programme casts aspersions on Bob Diamond, who's then CEO of Barclays, um, and others kind of testimonies to the select committee um, in terms of what they knew. So I'm, I'm sure that story is going to run further and further. Yes, particularly now that there's a parliamentary uh, process involved in this uh, issue too. It's interesting because I was talking to uh, Algie Hall about this and uh, he didn't seem to think there was anything wrong with representatives of the Bank of England uh, surreptitiously uh, advising the banks to try and keep the rate uh, had, low. Had that been the case? Had that been the case, had of course. Case. We, yes, we should emphasise that. Uh, because he says that, uh, obviously, it was uh, desperate times calling for desperate measures, but that's... I mean, uh, I, I wouldn't agree with that, but... Not well, that no, it wasn't no. desperate times, but... Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was an unregulated part of the market, though, before, and now it is regulated. So I suppose Algie's point is that, you know, desperate measures for desperate times argument could have held sway and that the bank had to do everything it could to prop up the stability of the banks and... And massaging the appearance of their lending health well, could that's have right. fallen into that remit. I think it's the issue of transparency also, I would yeah. argue, though. 
yeah. yeah. I, I understand that, but it's also the issue of transparency. Indeed, indeed. But, uh, you know, there is a practical angle there. The li- liquidity had all but dried up in the economy, so you can understand uh, the imperative from the, the bank's point of view. If that had been the case. If that had been the case. And uh, we also know that uh, Algae Hall is fairly reprehensible from a moral perspective. <laughs> Any, anyway, uh, going on to uh, another another part of the, the news section here as well. Uh, Alex, you might want to come in on this one as well, uh, BHP Billiton. I mean, there's been some talk for some time, not just with uh, that particular group, but with some of the other larger uh, diversified resource groups to the effect that uh, they should be broken up and now BHP's in the, in the firing line. Yeah, well, of course, I mean, it's worth remembering that BHP was partly broken up or uh, or divested a good chunk of his assets just a couple of years with ago South with, 32. With, with South 32. Um, this latest episode comes uh, courtesy of activist investor Elliot Associates and they, I mean, it's their job, isn't it, to sort of uh, sit on the sidelines and suggest ways that large corporations could uh, run their businesses differently. But their, their, um, uh, their presentation this week, and we understand this has been going on for about eight months uh, now that they've been writing uh, to, to management of BHP and and back and forth, they they've argued for a couple of changes um, uh, to BHP structure. One is about is a slightly convoluted area about the franking and dividend credits and how that relates to their their Australian subsidiary and how the company is structured for tax reasons. The second would r- relates to their their thoughts on. Um, the value of the U.S. petroleum business in in BHP, which is quite unorthodox for a miner that they have oil revenues, they argue part of this should be spun out. Um, and they've also argued for uh, the uh, BHP to take a more aggressive approach for you know vis-a-vis share buybacks. Interestingly, yesterday and that was that was Tuesday, uh, BHP came back uh, you know very very quickly with their point by point rebuttal of um, of. Elliot Associates uh, arguments, um, and I, I, you know, I think I think you, you can see some merit to both sides of this. For one, for one, I mean that the, the oil business acts as a as a as a sort of hedge to their their iron ore copper assets. The share buyback issue is quite interesting. I suppose you've you know commodities groups are very very volatile, and it can be hard to predict the return on investment. So committing to to buying back your shares is a way of financially engineering the share price to a degree which uh, you know i suppose does have some merits in a way that that not, nothing is that predictable when it comes to commodities so if you can give shareholders a bit more stability that could be a good thing yeah i mean you can understand why they've, they've taken this position because um uh, bhp have taken uh, a couple of really large impairments on their uh, energy division uh, down through the years but uh, they've also as you mentioned pointed out the uh, strategic ad- advantages because of that diversification anyway i mean the critics of these uh, type of sort of agitator funds if you like think this is a, a latter-day form of asset stripping get in uh, destabilize the board and try and make a, a quick buck um but, you know, we'll see how this one runs. I mean, it's not the only uh, company that's in the crosshairs in this regard. Yeah, I mean, I, I was going to say they are agitators, but it's, you know, it's a, this important part of investing is that you do have, you know, good back and forths and uh, strong arguments for where the value in a, in a company lies. So if they're saying, they're saying that the spin out of the oil business would be a good thing and it could increase shareholder value, then that's for BHP to defend and say why, you know, why they have this... 
uh, within their current portfolio. So, I mean, it's there is a slight uh, distraction, obviously, for management here, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's probably a good thing that they're having their strategy rates over the coals. Indeed. Elsewhere in the news section, uh, there's a brief story on how the UK automotive sector is benefiting from the uh, post-referendum fall in sterling. We're loath to go rake over the coals as far as the Brexit link stories go, but I expect we'll be having a few more in the coming months as well. But it's it's interesting from the point of view is that that dynamic has helped to bolster the the UK economy at a time when aggregate uh, spending seems to be dropping off in the com- consumer sector and plus we've got inflation coming through into the mix. This, this kind of data shows um, from the ONS that um, exports are accounting for more sales than kind of domestic demand now, which is domestic demand's held pretty kind of steady, whereas exports have been growing steadily over the year. There's a couple of uh, interesting things out today. I mean, in the, in the magazine the last few months, we've been uh, highlighting the fact that we're coming to the end or into a down leg of the UK consumer cycle. And that seems to have been uh, borne out by the latest figures from uh, Visa as well. And the fact that I think aggregate demand is now at its lowest level in about four months. Um, so obviously, I, I don't think this is necessarily related to the referendum uh, result at all. Uh, I think this is just uh, part of the normal uh, cyclical turn of the economy. And speaking uh, of the general health of the economy, that's often reflected in a a bellwether sector, i.e. the recruiters. And uh, there was some interesting news out from Robert Walters this week, Emma. Yeah, well, I think just as people were, you know, very cautious ahead of Brexit and, and after the referendum, obviously, that, you know, hiring would take a downturn, particularly permanent hiring in the UK. And actually, the share prices of uh, Robert Walters, Michael Page, Hayes, all really suffered, actually, after the referendum from the kind of um, steady recovery um, that they were making from the beginning of 2015. They then, during 2016, took a bit of a downturn. Having said that, they're they're now back on the up, and, and this this Q1 update. So for the first three months of this year, from Robert Walters, um, it was really interesting actually, and it kind of showed. Um, it's kind of bucking, I imagine, what a lot of people's expectations might have been. There was a, um, a 27% increase in net fee income from the UK business. Um, and what was more interesting, actually, was that, was that there was a big upturn, a notable upturn, management said, in financial services recruitment. And that was permanent hiring as well, which is even more encouraging. I guess um, those decisions must have been put on the, the back burner. You know, uh, I, yeah, you can imagine so. But... Um, it's just interesting, um, even more so because of the uh, the update from Page Group, uh, Michael Page, during the same period, which showed that um, their UK business was actually flat, but um, financial services had increased a lot also. Um, so I think that's interesting given some people's concerns maybe about uh, London as a financial centre and perhaps hiring there that, you know, permanent recruitment in the financial centre in, 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 of London um, is still going on. Well, I think the Robert uh, Walters statement as well uh, alluded to the fact that uh, the Brexit uh, discussion was yesterday's uh, conversation, according to the banks. And so they're back into the market. And uh, it, it seems these are obviously, these aren't new hirings, these are delayed hirings. But it does, it does seem to suggest that uh, concerns linked uh, to the eventual trade dealer uh, 
uh, dissipating to a certain degree. I mean, yeah, I mean, even if they are delayed hirings, um, particularly when you, when you are hiring people permanently, that's got to show a degree of confidence, surely. It's not a sector I know particularly well, but how did Robert Walters, or how is the industry squaring this with, you know, we've seen lots of headlines about headquarters being moved, you know, banking headquarters being moved to the continent. Is it, is it fair to say that this is totally dissipating? Well, I, I, I don't think it's totally dissipating, no. But it, 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 it all comes down to what happens with the negotiations over uh, passporting. I mean, it's a key sector. Mm. Financial service is obviously a key sector to the United Kingdom. And there's going to be a period of horse trading, we think, not just in relation to that, but automotive sector and agriculture. Sectors across the board where countries within the EU uh, the EU have a strategic interest. I think parts of uh, the banking system, we talk about Euro clear, clearing, for instance, that they may move over uh, to the continent, who can say, but that may well have happened uh, at any rate. Um, in which case, you know, headcount uh, might drop slightly in the city of London or the people that are employed within London might re- um, decamp to the continent, who can say? I think it's also interesting with the recruiters that what really benefits them is churn. So it's people, you know, in, in times of um, in times of downturn or if people are concerned, they tend to stay in their jobs for longer. They don't want to move jobs. Whereas if there's more confidence, people will be looking for new jobs. So that's really what recruiters need. That's why they are seen as a bellwether for general kind of economic confidence, because it's when people are willing to change jobs. So it's not necessarily, I guess, increasing your workforce, but it's the confidence of people to switch jobs. That's all they need is people to switch job, not necessarily for big swathes of hiring and a massive increase in hiring. It's it's churn, it's what they really need. But of course, I mean, the issue of passporting rights is a crucial one with the kind of Brexit negotiations. And in terms of, yeah, you know, people increasing their workforces or downsizing their workforce. Is, is there not also a structural trend away from uh, permanent hiring in favour of contract? That's, to be honest, that's more on the continent, places like France, Germany. But that's, but that's a long-standing trend just because the labour laws are so... Um, are so kind of intense there that actually a lot of employers won't take people on permanently because it's very difficult to then downsize if you you wanted to so that's why it's kind of they have very skilled workers on kind of contracts on on kind of projects that's a trend it's also interesting actually to say that um the day that the robert walters update came out and also um page group the following day that the shares of all the recruiters went up massively um and it wasn't just the uk actually for robert walters they also had um positive um positive net fee income in australia which is interesting obviously given the the downturn there linked to the kind of uh, mining sector and haze which is um which does have a considerable kind of exposure there their shares went up i imagine because they thought well other recruiters there might benefit then if it's if it's going to go and the shares were um were up considerably actually five six percent which is good both days actually i i started the uh, the podcast by alluding to the fact that we wouldn't talk much about brexit and we've talked about little other than that um but it's, the recruiters uh, provide an interesting example uh, of, the, of the companies and the way that they will be affected by uh, this fundamental change in the in uh, the UK's trading relationship. Because the, the recruiters, I think, recognised fairly early on where the where the growth markets were, and most of those were outside of Europe over the long term. So, anyway. 
we I think we've we've done our bit for the recruiters. Thanks very much on that, Emma. Okay, on to the uh, the main event for this week, and it's uh, all down to our friend here, Alex Newman. Uh, we've been talking for some time about the uh, the implications arising from uh, the gradual decline in North Sea oil revenues and um, uh, sort of fall away in, in capital investment there. And we've come on to the subject of decommissioning. Alex, discuss. As you alluded to there, Mark, the industry in North Sea is, uh, and sorry for the most hackneyed of journalistic cliches, but at a bit of a crossroads. So it won't have escaped our investors' uh, notice that North Sea oil and gas production has been declining for the best part of two decades now. One of the the big things holding back investment currently, and according to Oil & Gas UK, there is still about 20 billion barrels of oil and gas left in in the North Sea, is the uh, spectre of decommissioning. Decommissioning basically is the retiring, scrapping uh, and dismantling of the infrastructure which has allowed the the North Sea to flourish as an energy-producing region for 40 years now. There's a huge, huge cleanup cost associated with this. I think some of the estimates range from uh, about eighteen billion pounds over the next decade to well over a hundred billion, you know, in, in the coming decades. So the the next question is, who's going to pay for this? Right. Well, we're on hook for for some of this, unfortunately. We um, being the taxpayer. We being the taxpayer. Um, we potentially being the Im- investors as well, but we can come on to that in a bit. Um, so the the way liability uh, decommissioning liabilities work, operators, so the the, the companies which uh, produced oil and gas, who paid tax on that oil and gas production, can claim back some of their cleanup costs against that tax paid. So. It, it varies depending on the, the, the age of the field and the size of the field, but it can, in some cases, be up to 75%. You know, so so hold on a minute. The, the companies themselves can actually derive tax benefits from this decommissioning process and set aside, and yet taxpayers, uh, what, what recourse do we have? Well, uh, I mean, we have recourse from the uh, uh, in, in a couple of ways. So we've got the Oil and Gas Authority, which just set up last year, and they've been basically given a mandate to ensure that this is all being done cost effectively so the idea being that they can hold the feet of the industry up to the fire and say you know we're getting the good good pricing for uh, retiring these rigs crossroads feet to the fire yeah it's it's, 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 a, it's an absolute barrage of cliches <laughs> here. um but I, I mean what is holding back the industry is basically agreeing on costs so there is i think there's a there's a huge uh, investment case here there's Myriad companies, listed companies, which have signed up. So the all services companies like Petrofac, Wood Group, um, uh, uh, Cape, who are looking to get in on some of this work. But then there are others such as Orgian, which I know a waste disposal company you you cover, uh, James Fisher, uh, Costain, the engineering group, which are all looking to get in, in on the action. So, you know, and there's, and there's bi- billions and billions of Even tiny Gulf Marine services, I think they've mentioned it in some of their dispatches as well for their sort of jack-up rigs or whatever you call their, their yeah. floating rigs to go out there. I mean, why not? I mean, it's odd, really, because, I mean, the industry itself would have been aware, aware of this for some time, but because it's, it's fairly unpalatable as far as uh, public perceptions go, uh, we're only starting to hear about it now. But I guess, you know, there's public costs here, but there's private opportunities too. 
Yeah, when you say unpalatable, you mean that we're going to be on the hook for it. Well, the fact, yeah, I mean, and plus there's there's an environmental uh, question there as well. It it, it seems to me uh, people are pretty much aware now, for instance, that the uh, the nuclear industry, which was once uh, deemed to be too cheap to uh, meter, which has become a bit of a cliche in the industry as well. Uh, but of course, uh, th- there seems to be an open un- open ended sort of uh, equation relating to decommissioning costs there. And now it seems this is being replicated, albeit to a, a, to a lesser degree, within uh, the oil and gas industry, which obviously raises the question, you know, you, you read an awful lot in the paper about uh, subsidies for green or renewable energy sources, and yet very little about this, uh, this fundamental part of the UK economy. Yeah, the question being, I, I suppose, there is, is why have we given so much to the operators I mean, the answer is that they have actually they have provided quite a lot back. And North Sea, the North Sea, you know, it's no longer generating uh, the, uh, the revenue for the exchequer as it once did. But I think it, it was is, a net cost for the first time last yeah, year. Yeah, so last, last year, according uh, according to some research, it, it was a four hundred million pound drain on the uh, on the public purse. But over you know over the decades, it's contributed over three hundred billion pounds to to the revenue. And so yeah, there's been a clear incentive for for the government of to course, pro- that, that's provide true. operators with with the funding and the and the tax benefits to you know to extract that, oil. That's direct tax benefits to the exchequer, and of course there's the multiplier effect by you know by the, all the firms set up in Aberdeen, tens of thousands or yeah. hundreds of thousands of people employed down yeah, through the years. Absolutely, and and uh, you know we spoke to for this the the feature we spoke with um uh, with Shell, which is is just unveiled. This is the, the the largest decommissioning project to date, decommissioning of the Brent field, and it's going to involve lots of precedents, including the he, you know the heaviest ever lift of a of a platform, and a precedent where they're basically asking to leave the concrete structures in the sea to a lot of environmental groups' uh, ire. But Shell also argued that um, you know that this whole process and all their future. Uh, decommissioning liabilities are going to you know are going to create a new industry as well so wood group uh, and others who are working with them on the brentfield uh, decommissioning also also benefit they also benefit by uh, getting expertise expertise which they can then export to to other offshore industries which one day will want to uh, decommission their their uh, infrastructure as well well, presumably some of the larger uh, Norwegian operators and, and Danish operators as well have got uh, tremendous uh, subsea experience. They'll, they'll be involved there. Yeah, I mean, Mesk, Mesk is involved to mm. a, a big degree. But um, but I mean, in the future, we also look at uh, some of the other prospects for the, the North Sea. And, you know, there, there is production coming there. It's just probably not going to come from the, the, uh, uh, the big names which have dominated the North Sea for the last... Uh, last few decades a lot of a lot of the future investment though will hinge on one keeping costs capped they, they obviously ran away in in recent years and had you know had to come down massively since 2004 but secondly as well to to get some sort of assurance on how much it's going to cost to to clean up once the sun sets on the industry well, it's a great piece, uh, Alex, anyway. And, and as I say, readers can look forward to uh, some updates in the, the weeks and uh, months to come on that too. It'll, it'll form an increasingly important part of revenues for a, a lot of these oil service companies. There's no doubt about that. Uh, so elsewhere in the magazine this week, there's an interesting piece by Philip Ryland on uh, financial fiction as well that I'm sure that everyone will find interesting. And uh, I've uh, 
penned uh, this week's sector focus, looking at the uh, specialty chemicals uh, industry, looking at the uh, the structural changes underway there, uh, partly as a result of uh, the EU referendum again, again, which I don't think I've uh, mentioned up to now. Um, Emma, are there any other articles this week that have uh, caught the eye? Yeah, there's uh, lots from Chris Dillo on escaping negative yields, and he poses the question, what will raise yields since in-debt? Links guilt yields are obviously near record lows. He also talks about the inflexible economy in his economic outlook. And as ever, uh, Simon Thompson's uh, offered up an interesting subject this week. Yeah, he's just looking at the potential for further kind of share price upside from some of his top aim performers. Always a popular piece indeed. Okay, well, that's about uh, it for this week. Uh, next week, we'll have uh, John back in the chair. But until then, thank you very much. The uh, the magazine, of course, is available in all good news agents at £4.90, a trice. But until then, thanks very much. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.